You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. So my name is Pastor Mike here at uh, Whitefields. I'm on staff here with uh, Pastor Nick, who he's also filling in for a pastor up in Brighton, uh, just up the road from us. So he asked me to teach this morning, and I, I said yes, and then immediately regretted it as the passage this morning is Romans chapter 7. But he said, no, take backsies. So I was like, okay, well, I guess that's how pastors talk in the office, no, no kindergartners. But so we're going to be in Romans chapter 7 this morning. If any of you have ever studied this passage, it's not exactly one of the, the easiest ones to get through. And uh, it's got a lot in it. And so for the next four hours, we're going to uh, go in depth into... Romans chapter 7. No, we're not. No, we're not. Romans chapter 7. Who are you married to? That was the title of this message. And up until this chapter, Paul has been passionately laying out the case that the law brings death and that grace brings life. He has made it perfectly clear that we are lost apart from the grace of God. He says in chapter 6, he says, There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. There is none who does good. No, not one. And he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are the all and we are the none. We cannot justify ourselves. We cannot sanctify ourselves. We can't please God in our own strengths. The law is definitely not our friend. It's a cruel master, as Paul says, revealing our sin in many ways, inciting us to sin. Paul is not going to let off the gas pedal here in chapter 7. He's not going to let us alone. He's going to bring us to the point of utter despair. In verse 24, when he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then Paul will bring his own testimony to bear to show us the depth of our sinful nature and our utter dependence on and our need for Jesus. pastor that I know who has walked with the Lord for decades, he once told me, that as he has walked with the Lord and as he has grown closer to God year by year, it has just revealed more and more the depth of his sin and the great need that he has for Jesus, he has for his Savior. You know, like when you turn on the vanity lights in the bathroom and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, what is that revealing, you know? You, you move to get a closer look and it just gets, seems to get even scarier, you know? It's that light. The closer we get to light, it just the more it reveals about us. And that is what Paul is going to do here. And I'm sure many of us share that same testimony. Just when we think we've got this whole Christian thing, you know, buttoned up and we know what we're doing, we're faced with that blackness of our hearts and our need for Jesus. So Romans chapter 7 is going to be this very powerful light being shone on our true nature and revealing the true mess that we're in this morning. But thankfully, Paul's not going to leave us there. He's not going to leave. There is hope. So stick with me. But he's going to show us who we are but to and who to look to in verse 25. But then he's going to get on to the glorious words of Romans chapter 8, verse 1, which Nick is going to get into next week. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I know you and I, we love those words. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
But in order for us to fully understand the magnitude of those words in Romans 8, 1, and to feel the relief, I think, that we all want to feel, we kind of need to wallow a little bit with Paul through the darkness of the human heart and once again come to an understanding of the gospel and our desperate need for it. So we're going to look at Romans chapter 7 in three parts this morning. The first part being a marriage that brings life. The second part, rules that invoke rebellion. And the third part, who is your deliverer? So the first part, a marriage that brings life, verses 1 through 6. In this first section here in chapter 7, Paul gives a second answer to the question he's already posed in chapter 6, verse 15. If you just flip over there, you'll see it there. It says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under, under law but under grace? In other words, does the gospel leave you free to just kind of do whatever you choose. And in these first six verses, Paul's again, again, he's again going to say, no. You can either be married to the law or be married to Christ, but you cannot be unmarried or be married to both. And Paul continues with that idea that we have seen prior to this, that we are all serve someone, all serve something. There's no middle ground. We're all serving a master, and we can't serve two masters. So Paul begins here in verse 1 with the marriage analogy, and we start there in verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, and right here in the original Greek language, there's no the in front of law, and so he says, I'm speaking to those who know law. So both the Romans and both the Roman Christians and both the Jewish Christians would know exactly what Paul was saying. They would have a reference point for what he was going to say next. He says, he says, for that the law is binding, it rules over us. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So whether by Roman law or Jewish law, a woman who was bound to her husband was bound for life. In verse 2, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Marriage is a binding legal relationship. The law only binds those that are alive, right? If either party dies, both are freed from the law of marriage. It is hard to have a contract with a dead person. They have no power over you from the grave, you know. Back on November 24, 1963, Lee Harvey Oswald was being transported to a prison cell awaiting his court appearance. We all know what happened. A guy named Jack Ruby came and kind of ended all that by killing Lee Harvey Oswald, who'd been accused of killing the president, JFK. So what happened? You know, they didn't... You know, everything was stopped right then when he died. There was no court date. There was no judge had to appear, no more lawyers. It was done. Death brought an end to that whole thing. You know, and there was no answers. Nobody could do anything about it. They couldn't drag Lee Harvey Oswald and prop him up there in front of the judge. And, you know, and you, you know you're going to jail for the rest of your life. He's not going to answer back. You know, death brought an end to all of that. That's what Paul is trying to get here. And then he's going to apply that illustration to us, starting in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers... You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. If you like underlining in your Bible or highlighting, just don't scratch on your iPads or anything, but we may bear fruit for God there in, at the end of verse 4. For while we were living in the flesh, 
Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. If you want to underline that one as well. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. That's also a good thing to underline, the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. In our case, we have died. We, the bride of Christ, we have died to the law and have been married to Christ. We have died to the law. It no longer has claim on us. We're not bound by it. It doesn't hold us captive. It does not rule over us any longer. There's a complete change in our relationship and our allegiance. Our, our death in Christ frees us to remarry. It's not a perfect analogy, but Paul has given us understanding and already kind of shed light on this back in chapter 6, verse 6 through 8. We're going to be referencing chapter 6 because kind of chapter 6 and 7 really go together. 6, 7, and 8 are chapters you kind of need to read together because you're kind of left in despair if you kind of do all your study in chapter 6 and then a little bit in 7, you're like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? You need to get to chapter 8. So Paul's going to reference a lot there in chapter 6, and he goes on to say in verse 6 in chapter 6 of Romans, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And as one author put it, he says, as death breaks the bond between husband and wife, so death, the believer's death with Christ, breaks the bond which formerly yoked him to the law, and now he is free to enter into union with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And Paul alludes to this new relationship there, what I told you underlined at the end of verse 6, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The Old Testament prophets, they already kind of had a bead on this in the Old Testament, shedding light on this amazing new relationship that would yet to be fulfilled in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. He writes, a new heart, God speaking through Ezekiel says, a new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And then also in Jeremiah 31, 33, a very familiar verse, I'm sure, for many of you. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So there's this radical change in our relationship to God when we embrace Jesus and the work of the cross on our behalf, we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So why do we serve? Why do we serve? That's the question that comes to mind. Why do we serve? Not because the law is our master and we have to, but because Christ is our husband and we want to. Not because obedience leads to salvation, but because salvation leads us to obedience. We are in love with Christ, and because of his perfect life and death, we are accepted by the Father in Christ. Just as a husband seeks to please his wife, and a wife, of course, seeks to please her husband, because of their love relationship, so it is with us and God, his perfect love causes us to serve in the newness of the Spirit, bearing fruit to holiness and ultimately eternal life 
with God. I like the way Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he illustrates this relationship. He says, the difference between an unbeliever sinning and a Christian sinning is the difference between a man transgressing the laws of the state and a husband who has done something he should not do in his relationship with his wife. He is not breaking the law. He is wounding the heart of his wife. Notice that he's wounding the heart of his wife. That is the difference. It's, it's no longer a legal matter. It's a matter of personal relationship and love. The man does not cease to be the husband legally in that instance. Law does not come into the matter at all. In a sense, it's now something much worse than legal condemnation. I would rather offend against the law of the land objectively outside of me than hurt someone whom I love. In that case, you have sinned, of course, but you have sinned against love. So you may and you should feel ashamed, but you should not feel condemnation because to do so is to put yourself back under the law. It is your identity in Christ and your knowledge of, your love, of his love for you that causes you to want to please him and to put away those sinful desires and actions. Now, Paul anticipates the questions here of his readers after, after he has gone there through uh, verses 1 through 6, and of course, probably after he's gone through the whole of chapter 6 as well. If we are married to the law, and had to be released from the law because it aroused sinful passions and sinful desires in us and was working our members to, to bear fruit unto death, and then does that make the law bad? Does that make the law evil? That's a natural question that would have come up in the minds of the Jews who were passionate about the word of God, passionate about the law of God. What does he say there in verse 7? He says, What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. And you should understand Paul's readers at this point. What has Paul said about the law so far? If you've been with us since the beginning of Romans, these are some of the things that, that Paul has said about the law. In chapter 3, verse 20, he said that the law reveals sin. In chapter 3, verse 19, he says it condemns a sinner. In chapter 4, verse 15, it defines sin as transgression. In chapter 5, verse 13, it brings wrath. And in chapter 5, verse 20, it says that that the trespass, that sin might actually increase. That was the law, why the law was brought. The law reveals sin, not salvation. It brings wrath and not grace. So turn with me to Psalm 19 if you've got your Bibles. This is not a psalm that you have underlined in your Bible. You probably should. It's a beautiful psalm to read. Psalm 19 verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the law is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the law are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the law are true, of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. May, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great. Reward. So this is the Jewish mind and understanding of the law. Not to forget, of course, Psalm 119, which we will not read today because it is the longest chapter in the Bible. But So what is Paul saying? So he goes on to say here in verse 7, he says, What then, for, uh, verse 7 of chapter 7, What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means, yet it is, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. 
But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So there's two things that we need to understand here as we, we read those words. First of all, even though Paul has painted the law so far in a negative light up until this point, he is quick to point out that it's not the law that is at fault. It is us. We are the problem. The law is like a mirror reflecting our true nature back to us. The mirror, of course, is not at fault. When you go into the bathroom in the morning and you switch on those vanity lights and you like jump back from what you see, it's not the mirror's fault. You're not like, honey, I think our mirror is defective. Get on Amazon, order us a new mirror. It's not reflecting back to me what I want to see. The law is like a doctor. You go for a checkup and he comes back and he says, I'm sorry, you have cancer and you're going to die. Is the doctor evil? No, he's just brought you the prognosis, the diagnosis. The law looks at us and says, you are sick inside and there is no hope. Now on the outside, things can look fine. We can be sick inside and have no external symptoms. We can be aware. We can not be aware, of course, of the depth of our illness. And some people, of course, they just kind of, they're in denial. You know, they get a diagnosis of illness and like, well, you know, I feel fine. So I'm not going to even deal with it. And they can live in denial. And many of the times we live in denial. This is what Paul is alluding to here in verse 9. Paul followed the Ten Commandments to the T. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. You know, he knew since his birth, he was studied in law, he understood the law, and he thought that he had followed them. But Paul's aha moment, you know, he's kind of come to Jesus moment, as you might say, came with covetousness when he came to the 10th commandment. This is when Paul truly understood the spiritual nature of the law, just as Jesus had taught them on the Sermon on the Mount. The last and 10th commandment cannot be reduced to an external it has everything to do with our inward attitude and our inward heart issues. To covet is to be discontent with what God has given you and is itself a form, of course, of idolatry because it puts the object of desire in the place of God. He realized this. Paul realized this. It cut him to the bone. And he says he realized that the, the law had no power, of course, to help him overcome this discontentment with God. He had followed the law, but he realized it hadn't got him any closer to God. It was not the fault of the law, though. On top of that, he realized his true nature was also to actually rebel against the law. As a Pharisee, he had been content to follow the letter of the law in the power of his flesh, but when his eyes were opened to the true nature of the law, it revealed how far short he had fallen to God's standard. He truly realized the depth of his depravity. You know, my wife and I, for many, many years, lived on a third-story apartment in downtown Budapest. We didn't have a yard. And I have a yard now, so I, that's one of my favorite things, to go out in the morning and look at the, the yard and the grass in the back. And I look out there, and I see a weed here, maybe a weed there, you know, one or two. But then when you get down to the grass level, it's very disheartening how much... How many weeds are in your yard? And I think I've spent over this summer probably a good 
you know, 48 solid hours just pulling weeds, and it's like it never comes to an end. And this is this law of focusing on our sin. We think, ah, there's a weed. Ah, there's a weed. You get down to the ground level, and it's just like everywhere. And there's things like bindweed. You know, I never heard of bindweed in Budapest on the third floor. And it's like in everything and choking the life out of all the good plants, you know. Sin leading to death. That's what Paul is getting at here. He says, this is what Paul is saying. I would not have known I was sick unless the law told me. I would not have known the real depth of my problem without the law. Therefore, the law is not the issue. I am the issue. He says in verse 12, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul teaches us that the law was given to reveal the true severity of our sin sickness. Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, We need sin to appear sin because it always wants to hide in us and conceal its true depths and strengths. This is one of the most deplorable results of sin. It injures us most by taking from us the capacity to know how much we are injured. It undermines the man's constitution and yet leads him to boast of unfailing health. It beggars him and and tells him he is rich. It strips him and makes him glory in his fancied robes. So the first thing that we saw when we read that section of Scripture was that the law was given to reveal our sin nature. But the second reason we read here in verse 8 where he says, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. Did you see that? That the law is not passive, but active. It is actually actively inciting evil desire in us. Again, law is not the problem. We are. Now, I don't want anybody in this room at this moment to look out that window and see what's going on, because it's very interesting. I need you to focus right here, because this is where it's all happening. Now, what happened right there? Everybody's, not everybody, maybe some of you are thinking about what's out that window. You really want to know. I brought the commandment. I brought the law. Up until this point, you didn't care that there was even a window until I pointed out that there was a window, and then I pointed out to you that you shouldn't look out the window, So you went from no knowledge whatsoever to really wanting to have knowledge about that window. And the fact that you want to have knowledge means you have to disobey commandment that was given to you. This is what Paul is saying. The law incited rebellion in him. The law, of course, is not the problem. We also, where do we get that phrase reverse psychology from? Hasn't it become one of the chief child-rearing tools in our in our you know communities nowadays if i tell my kids the opposite maybe they will actually obey because if i tell them what they need to do they won't do that no it, you bring the command and what does it do it incites rebellion in them it's not something that you actually have to teach them you have to break them of that we bring the law and they disobey we've seen this we've felt this we've acted out in this way this is what paul is talking about and he goes on in verse 13 he says did that which is the law which is good, the law, then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond nature. So the doctor has brought the, brought the prognosis and it's not good. Unless the law has not done its work, we would not have seen the need of a savior. We would continue being in denial about the depth of our sin. So this is the underlying motive in rejecting the prognosis of the law in our lives. This 
as you read through this, she's like, well, what is the motive? Why do, we, why do we want to reject God's law? Why do we want to act out in rebellion? And the answer is that we want to play God. We want to feel like we are in control, right? We want to have some semblance of control in our lives. And as we've studied through chapter 6, we realize that that's not even something that we can accomplish because we all serve something or someone in this world. And the world around us is in complete denial, of, in complete denial about the depth of this sin. They, they parade around with this false impression that they are in control of their lives. But as we learned last week, we serve something. We're all slaves to something. This is the essence, of course, of the first temptation to Eve in the garden. You will be like God. God said, don't eat of the tree of good and evil. And what did the serpent tell her? Well, he just said that because he doesn't want you to become like him. You know, we have, we have not ourselves escaped this false illusion. Even today, it is the fruit that leads to death. Our world around us, we want to have control. We want to act out as our own God. So we see that the law here is a mirror to our sinful nature. It reveals even today we need Jesus than ever before. But you know, as I studied through this section and I came to verse 12, I got this picture, not only that the law was a mirror, but that it was a window into the character of God. Not only a mirror, it reflects our nature back to us, but it's a window into the character of God. It gives us a glimpse into his true nature, one of holiness and goodness, justice, mercy, grace, and most of all, love. Love for us that doesn't leave us in our ignorance, right? but draws us and saves us. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than the honey and drippings of the honeycomb. As you read those words of Psalm 19, I believe that's what was on David's mind when he wrote down about the law of God. The law of God for him, it revealed that character of who God was. But you and I, we still struggle with sin, right? Even as new creations in Christ, we struggle. Our relationship to sin to law and sin has changed, but that doesn't mean it doesn't still influence us and try and bring us back into bondage, even though it is powerless to do so. And Paul here, as we get into our third section, he's going to make this personal and share with us his struggle with this dual nature. And this is going to lead us here into our third section, who is your deliverer? He goes on in verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now, before we go on, I need to introduce you to a bit of controversy here, one that has kind of raged for centuries, and that is, who is the I here that Paul is talking about when he says that, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Who is the I that Paul is talking of? Is it Paul the Pharisee? Or is it Paul the Apostle? Is this passage addressing the struggles of one still under the law or a Christian who struggles with walking in the Spirit and overcoming the lust of the flesh? Now, many brilliant scholars have written on this topic since the early church, and I read a lot of them this week. There's a great debate out there. How can Paul say here in verse 14 that he is sold under sin when in chapter 6, verse 7, he says, for one who has died has been completely set free from sin. Or in verse 14 of chapter 6, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. I think you can see the dilemma. But here we are introduced to the paradox 
of the Christian life, the dual nature that we all struggle with. So is this Paul the Pharisee, or is this Paul the Apostle? I'm not going to get into all the nuances of the different arguments. That's kind of your homework assignment. Be like the Bereans. Go ahead and see if what I say is so. Wrestle with it. Come to your own conclusions. But what convinced me of my position is that in verse, verses 1 through 13 of chapter 7, Paul speaks in the past tense. But when he comes to verse 14, he starts to speak in the present tense, and he continues to speak in the present tense and in the first person. This is why I believe it is Paul the Apostle that is speaking, sharing his personal testimony as he struggles, just like you and I, to live life in the Spirit, as each day we crucify the deeds of the flesh, putting on the things of the Spirit. And in chapter 8, you're going to look into a lot more of that. Now, I don't stand alone in that interpretation. The majority of commentators and scholars also have come to this conclusion but those who believe that this is Paul, the apostle, they still concede that Christians deal and struggle with the deeds of the flesh because we never reach per sinless perfection here on earth, this side of heaven. So let's go on in verse 15 in this final section. He starts there, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. It's very trendy nowadays for people to get tattoos of all kinds of things on their bodies. And sometimes I wonder if I should have verse 19 tattooed to my flesh. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. See the irony of that, of having that verse tattooed to your flesh. I will let you into an insight there on Friday when I was trying to do that uh, intro video, preview video for Sundays. It took me 17 takes of video to finally get it right because I could not get those words out of my mouth. That which I want to do, I do not do, and those things I should do, I kept like, oh, I was so incredibly frustrated. So just the inner workings of studying for, for Romans chapter 7. So, but you see the struggle here, right, in the words of Paul. It's, those things I want to do, I can't do. And those things that I'm doing, you know, again, I'm doing it again. I shouldn't do it. I just don't want to do anything right. That's the problem, you know. You see the struggle of Paul's words. You know, it's happened to all of us, right? You're in, your, you're in a fight with your husband or you're in a fight with your wife and you're angry. You're about to say something you know that you shouldn't say. This little voice pops up in your, in your, in your mind and says, don't say that. And you say it anyway. Of course, you immediately regret it, right? Or you send that email or you send that text you're like, I know I shouldn't send this, but I'm going to send it anyway. You know, and you immediately regret it. Or you're on I-25, and you're being tailgated, or somebody cuts you off. You know, and you know you shouldn't, but you share some choice French words with them, or some arm gestures that you probably shouldn't. You know you shouldn't. It was in there. You know, I don't want to do this, but yet you do it. What is that struggle? That's that struggle that Paul here is talking about. Paul knew this. Aren't you grateful that he shares his testimony with us? I am. But he's going to have a specific purpose for sharing it with us. 
And that is not that it's to excuse our sin. That is not the point of what Paul is saying here. This passage, nothing about Romans chapter 7 excuses our sin. No. We'll get to that purpose in a minute. Go on verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So Paul here is identifying for us the root of this struggle, and that is he is a man with two natures. One delights in the law of God. The other wages war against God's law. And you and I live today in this tension. Galatians 5.17, Paul says it again to the Galatians. He says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But I don't want to live in this tension. I know you don't want to live in this tension. And this tension is created when we attempt to live this Christian life in our own strength, and it can't be done. It brings us to the end of ourselves, and we fail time after time after time. And finally, we shout out with Paul in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And that adjective, wretched, means miserable, distressed condition. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I'm sure many of us have come to this place in life, maybe this week, maybe this morning. How do I overcome the power of sin in my life? The key is right here. Understanding who you are and understanding who your Savior is. Not what my Savior is, not the rules I need to follow or the steps I need to follow or trying hard, but who Who is my Savior? Who are you and I married to this morning? Verse 25 says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I am that wretched man, and Jesus is my Savior. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it is his question. Well, Jesus understands it. Jesus understands our deceitful hearts. That is why he did what he did, why he defeated death on our behalf. The law brings us to a fuller understanding of what grace is, a greater appreciation of what Jesus did for us on the cross, and through grace, we are free. Though grace is free to us, it costs God everything. We get a greater grasp on the magnitude of God's love for us this morning, and that leads us to worship and adoration, and thankfulness, and gratefulness, and ultimately a desire to please God. Paul again says to the Galatians in chapter 2, verse 19, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's main point here is that We need to get outside of ourselves. Yes, our justification came through Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, the cross. We celebrate that in communion this morning. But our sanctification, our day-to-day growth in the things of God also come through clinging to Jesus. 
That's what Paul said again to the Galatians. In chapter 3, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? This is Paul's point here. The law cannot be perfected in our in our lives by the law. We have to cling to Christ in our sanctification. And if there's one spiritual discipline that we need to master that will help us in the fight against our sin nature, it is to cling to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. This is why the gospel is so important. It's why we need to remember what Jesus has done. Why we take communion together here on Sunday mornings at Whitefields every week. Why we sing of the goodness of God. Why we study his word together. Why we pray. Because our enemy is looking to undermine our faith at every turn. And that's why I love that words, the words of that song we sing here called Nail to the Cross. And the first verse says this. When I stand accused by my regrets and the devil roars his empty threats, I will preach the gospel to myself that I am a man, not a man condemned for Jesus Christ is my defense. God brought the law to show us the wretchedness of our souls, but he gave us Jesus to deliver us, amen, from this body of death. We're not married to the law, but we are married to Jesus, lover of our souls. He, he loves us with that everlasting love. When we stumble, he is faithful and just to forgive us. He is faithful and just to forgive you today, no matter where you find yourselves. That is his promise to you. And if you don't know Jesus today, then he is faithful to forgive you. These words are for you to cling to Jesus. He could become the author and finisher of your faith. He is faithful and just to forgive you and change your heart so that you might become a new creation in Christ. Amen. Next week, we'll look at more what it means to walk in the spirit and the newness of life. And you don't want to miss that. So let's pray. And uh, we'll f close with a song. Lord, Lord, I'm just so humbled by this passage of Scripture and just the fact that, Lord, many times I don't cling to you and I should cling to you. And Lord, I just pray that each of us in this room would just come to the end of ourselves, that we would humbly submit ourselves to your word. Lord, we are so in such need of you, Lord. I know we, we desire to try and be in control but ultimately we're not in control. Oh, we need you to be in control of our lives, submitted to your lives every day, crucifying the deeds of the flesh and, and putting on the things of the Spirit, Lord. We just thank you for this scripture. Lord, I just thank you for everyone here who's come to hear your word. I just pray that as this week goes on, Lord, that these things would go deep into our hearts and be worked out, Lord, for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. 